you're listening to the Transport for the North podcast. Hello and welcome to the Transport for the North podcast. I am your host, Gemma, and this episode is all about our latest TFN Talks session. So you may remember we launched the TFN Talks webinar series uh, last summer as a way to uh, continue the conversations, bring people together while we're all still uh, working remotely and doing everything virtually to uh, discuss and highlight uh, the hot topics of the day. So uh, the TFN Talks webinar series is back for 2021. We've already hosted a couple and there'll be many more to come. You can find all the details on our website, head over to transportforthenorth.com. And if you navigate through via the uh, calendar page of the website, you'll find the TFN Talks page and sign up for all the updates there. Let's get into uh, this session then. So the most recent uh, TFN Talks was all about accessibility, uh, delivering an accessible transport system for the North. Equality of opportunity is at the heart of our approach. So transport isn't just transport for transport's sake. We, we have reasons to get from uh, A to B and on to C and D and wherever we need to go. Uh, we do travel for jobs and leisure and education and homes. So it's really important that we have a system uh, that's ac as accessible as possible. So we had an expert panel um, to discuss this really important topic. So looking at what needs to be done um, as we're planning and delivering transport schemes, what the current barriers are, how we're able to start overcoming them. So on our panel were uh, Stephen Brooks, MBE. He's a rail sector champion. He acted as our chair for the day. Uh, and we had Michael Paul, who is the head of advice and information for Disability Rights UK. Baroness Tani Gray-Thompson, a former Paralympian and crossbench peer. Caroline Young, Senior Project Manager here at Transport for the North. And Catherine Falker, who is the Stakeholder Manager at Transport Focus. So they discuss all sorts of things regarding transport accessibility. We're going to bring you uh, the whole session right now. So stay tuned for those conversations. Welcome to this uh, Transport for the North uh, Accessible event. I'd like to uh, first of all say it's great to have you all here. It's a pity that we've only got an hour for this session because uh, if we look at the questions which were sent in, we could actually talk till midnight. We've got a very distinguished panel today. I'm absolutely delighted that uh, we've been joined by such a key group of people. And just to put you in the picture, because I'm the only person here that I've never heard of, uh, I'm Stephen Brooks. Um, I was the Minister for Disabled People's Rail Sector Champion. That term of office, a three ministerial appointment, comes to an end shortly, but I will be continuing to work with the Disability Unit. And I'm very pleased to say that I'm now appointed as the uh, Rail Policy Advisor with Disability Rights UK. And so my colleague, Michael Paul, is going to be somebody I've worked with for many years and will continue to work with anyway. And of course, uh, Baroness Thompson and I have met and uh, spoken and uh, crossed Twitters on many occasions. Caroline, I'm very pleased to uh, introduce, and uh, Catherine Falker, 
it's equally great to have you all here today. So what I'm going to do now is to introduce each person who can briefly say what their interests are and uh, what they hope to get out of today as well. I'd like to start off then with Michael Paul, who's Head of Advice and Information at Disability Rights UK. Thanks, Stephen, and hello, everyone. I hope you can uh, hear me, and I'm not on mute. That's the that's one success for today. Great. So, yeah, thanks for joining us today. I'm, uh, as Stephen says, I'm Head of Advice and Information Services at Disability Rights UK. I've worked for DRUK for 10 years, and prior to that, I worked at Disability Alliance and was part of the unification board that brought Disability Alliance together with RADAR and National Centre for Independent Living to form Disability Rights UK on the 1st of January 2012. Uh, we'll be celebrating 10 years of existence shortly, so uh, watch this space. We hope to be able to celebrate with you all in some shape or form uh, at that time. So my role is to ensure our helplines and information provision meets the needs of our audience and to maximise the resources we have. So although we're quite a small organisation with the equivalent of around about 17, 18 full-time staff, we're fortunate to have quite a large reach. So our website receives more than 4 million visits a year. Uh, in February, we had nearly 80,000 unique visitors. Uh, well, when I say visitors, it means at least 80,000 different devices to our website in February. Uh, we sell around 13,000 copies of the Disability Rights Handbook, which I've got here. Uh, the next one coming out in April is orange, so uh, get yours here. And we handle more than 10,000 inquiries per annum uh, from disabled people, uh, covering a multitude of areas of need. But as well as ensuring we keep that up, my role is to uh, make sure that what we hear through our helplines directly influences the policy and campaigning work we do. In our new strategy, we've got seven policy priorities. One of those is entitled Ensuring Inclusive Town and Transport Planning. Now, as you all know, plans are being made nationwide to redesign towns and city centres. There are proposals to widen pavements, to increase cycle lanes and stop cars. Now, these are mainly with environmental issues as the driver, and I obviously wholeheartedly agree with the focus on the environment. But these changes do have massive implications for the freedom of movement of disabled people. Uh, for example, banning cars from cities and town centres bars access for many disabled people, and that's uh, especially if an bus or a tram system or whatever isn't accessible. I mean, in some cases it doesn't even exist, but if that, that does exist, it isn't accessible to everyone. Uh, and that's the first example of the need for joined up thinking, which is something we talk about a lot. There are a lot of smaller knee-jerk decisions were made across the country in response. But uh, again, a lot of the decisions weren't joined up. At Disability Rights UK, we talk a lot about, and I st actually struggle to say this, excuse me if I slip over it, cumulative impact analysis. <laughs> and the need for decisions to be taken in the spirit of inclusion and not in isolation. Uh, one example that comes up a lot in, in my work is the additional stress people experience through engaging with the benefit system. Uh, and therefore the knock-on effect, the huge knock-on effect on demand for mental health services as a result. So at the heart of, uh, of this is one of the pillars that Disability Rights UK have long championed from the beginning of our existence, and that's co-production. There won't be anyone uh, 
on the panel uh, tuning in today, anyone who might watch this later, who will disagree that co-production should be at the heart of everything we do. And when I say that systems are always most successful when the people who use them are involved at every stage of the process and from the very outset. Uh, thank you, and I'm uh, happy to leave it there and, and to hand over. So thanks for listening. Thank you, Michael. Um, our next uh, person that I'm introducing is Baroness Tani Gray-Thompson, who I think most of us will know, uh, well, certainly on the panel, we know her extremely well, and most of the audience uh, who are watching today will also be very much attuned to Tani and the brilliant work that's done on accessibility, particularly in the realms of transport. So, Tani, I'll pass over to you to sort of add to the uh, message of what you actually have achieved and what you do and what your aims are anyway. Thank you, Stephen. Uh, so I'm Tani. I, I was a Paralympic athlete, competed at five games and through my sporting career took uh, a huge number of plane journeys. And I'll be really honest, I avoided traveling by train as much as I possibly could. Um, and then in sort of transition out of sport, I now sit in the House of Lords. I live in the northeast of England and um, it's actually driving to London there and back once a week each way and doing um, the hours that we do in Parliament is actually just not possible. So in normal times I take between 140 and 160 train journeys um, a year and um, I'd, I'd still avoid it to be honest if there's any way I could avoid catching a train but my working life doesn't um, allow me to do that. So I was one of the people who sat on the National Disability Council in the mid 90s that oversaw the implementation of the Disability Discrimination Act that promised in January the first last year trains would be accessible and I remember in the 90s thinking they've got loads of time to get it sorted and then January the first came and went and I'd say every government is responsible for all the derogations but for me it's it's that sense of urgency when is it going to change uh, and I know it's difficult and challenging and procurement and platform heights and all these reasons why it's difficult um, but um, I don't think it's good enough actually because actually all I really want is the same miserable experience of commuting as everyone else and that is my aspiration I, I don't even have the same miserable experience of commuting as everyone else so for me it's not just about the trains and the platforms it's about staff training uh, it's about improving the booking system um, so that you actually know if you book you'll get on or off it's about talking to the teams that run the train company's social media teams, that if somebody is stuck on a train, the first thing to not tweet at them is, did you book? Because actually that is a complete lack of understanding um, about the situation that is currently there. Um, and for me, it's about, um, there's lots of steps to, to level boarding, but um, I think there's a huge amount more that, that could be done in terms of training. Um, I, with, with one train company, um, I haven't been on the train for a year, um, they play a game every time I turn up at the desk and it's a train company that allows turn up and go and they make a massive song and dance about the fact that I've not actually booked uh, and, and it's just tiring and exhausting and actually do that to every non-disabled person, not just to me, uh, because from that one um, train station, there's only one place I go, so, you know, just be better at, at what you do. And I know it's difficult because I used to sit on the board of Transport for London and Sir Peter Hendy used to make us do frontline duty 
many times a year. I have worked the gate line at London Bridge in London many times. It is not easy when people come and ask you what time the V&A is open and, and all those things that how difficult passengers and commuters can be. So I, I have a little bit of understanding about that. But for me, I don't think um, things are moving as quickly as I would like. I would love there to be some work on scooters, blanket ban on scooters, because someone drove their scooter badly once. We don't ban people because one person falls down the side of a train. Um, and I do think there's discrimination out there. It might not be obvious. It might not be uh, very um, sort of in your face. But actually, some of the policies that have been allowed to develop over the years, um, I, I do believe, are discriminatory. Um, Having said all that, I think train companies can do better. I really do. Uh, I wouldn't be still having this fight if I didn't feel that there was, because I've, I've got plenty of other fights to have. Um, if, if I didn't feel that it was worth it, I, I wouldn't be having this conversation. And for me, what's really important is having the voice of disabled people as part of every decision-making process. It'd be great if we could have some disabled people who are trained engineers and do all the really complicated stuff. But but actually, it's it's not forgetting that we're 20% of the population. Uh, we spend a lot of money on train tickets uh, and, and other forms of, of travel every year. And the thing that I would really love to change, I mean, this is for me on a personal level, I would love the same miserable experience, but I spend between 45 minutes an hour extra every single train journey I take because I'm a wheelchair user. That's an average. I mean, sometimes it's a lot more than that. Uh, and that's if actually the information on the websites are correct about what's an accessible train station, other staff, all those other things. Um, and I, I just think that could be better. And the final thing I'm going to say is the latest from, from Leonard Cheshire is that we might have to wait till 2070 for accessible trains. I'll be dead. And maybe actually then I'll stop tweeting. But um, I just don't think it's it's right that we, we have to kind of keep waiting um, for so long to, to make an improvement. Work out the baby steps, the big stuff can come at some point, but actually do better at the stuff that, that is meant to be happening right now. Tony, thank you very much indeed. The idea of you stopping tweeting is something which horrifies all of us, I think. It, it just wouldn't be, it wouldn't be the same sight without you. But you made a very good point there about um, trains, about the time it's taken. And the other important point you made is the fact that we are fair payers. Um, we're not asking for free travel, we're actually paying for travel and we should get the same respect and inclusion as every other passenger and I think that's a very, very important starting point for today. The next person I'm going to introduce is uh, Kathy, Catherine Falker from uh, Transport Focus. Works with high, well, she did work with Highways England and looks at uh, disabled road users. Um, but also works with uh, the team that uh, I know very well indeed, David Sidebottom, the passenger director at Transport Focus. And of course, it's an organisation which clearly has the interests of the passenger and the consumer at heart. So, Catherine, over to you. Thank you, Stephen. Hi, everyone. So, um, as Stephen just said, I work as a stakeholder manager at Transport Focus. And for those of you who don't know Transport Focus, we are the independent watchdog for transport users in Great Britain. And we are evidence-based, we aim to be useful to operators, and we are also consumer-focused. So I want to tell you a little bit about the research we've been doing since the start of the pandemic. Um, so May last year, 
we set up a COVID tracker survey where we asked 2,000 people a week on, online, obviously, um, about any travel experiences they were having, about the experience, um, how satisfied they were with the journey, and also about the perceptions and concerns um, for those who were non-users, because it's true that most of the people that we were surveying weren't actually using transport at the time, but not all of them. So by now we have collected about 70,000 responses altogether um, from our survey. And through this, we've managed to, well, we've identified three uh, key drivers, although I'm gonna talk about the top key drivers, um, to passengers feeling safe. Um, now these are the ability to keep a safe distance from other passengers the number of other people wearing face coverings and the behavior of other passengers. But our research has also shown that disabled passengers are less likely to feel satisfied with these aspects of their journey than non-disabled passengers. Um, and that is important. And our research has also indicated five areas where we feel that transport operators should focus their efforts. These are provide capacity, and improve information to support social distancing, so crowding information. Maintain improved cleanliness and also publicise their efforts to do this. Um, drive up compliance with the rules, especially face covering for those that should be wearing them. Offer more flexible fares to the less frequent commuters and to meet the new demand we're likely to see emerge post pandemic we're unlikely to go back to the nine to five Monday to Friday commuter, but also offer offers and promotions that will encourage people to come back onto rail. Um, and our findings also did indicate that disabled people were less likely to, um, sorry, were more likely to have concerns about returning to public transport when the vaccine program has been rolled out. We've also spoken to lots of transport operators across modes about the efforts they've made to mitigate any barriers that their disabled customers face due to the COVID safety measures that are in place. We met approximately 35 operators in total, train, bus, coach, motorway service areas, and asked them um, about these different initiatives and the challenges they'd faced as well. And I think if I was to summarize one key piece of good practice that came from these conversations, it was not just the operators that listened to feedback from their disabled customers and acted on it, but those operators that proactively sought it. So prior to implementing initiatives, they proactively sought feedback from um, their disabled customers. Um, and the most effective engagement has been by um, operators with established accessibility panels. And this is something that rail train companies are now obliged to set up, um, but it's not something that is required of other modes. And so we found operators that had asked their uh, disabled um, panel accessibility panels about COVID messaging, about how to get the messaging right, about face covering exemptions, about how to publicize that, and how to communicate to people that their journey was going to be different under COVID. And I think a key factor of improving the accessibility of transport going forward will be for operators across modes to establish formal accessibility panels where people are paid for their expertise. It's not something that's given for free. Um, and that this going forward, this will enable them to improve policies, improve the service they provide, uh, and also to improve their staff training. 
and I, I appreciate this won't over overcome all the challenges of making transport accessible, but I think if all operators did this uniformly, it would certainly improve things. I look forward to discussing this more. Thank you. Catherine, thank you very much indeed. Very interesting point you just made about the fact of commuters not being the uh, immediate take-up again by rail. And I think this is where most of the companies need to recognise the fact that families, disabled people and the leisure industry is going to be a very prime mover when the trains start using again. So they're going to have to take note of us and make things a lot better for us and not put us in there as a sort of a side effect. But I think you know those are kind of issues that will come out during the questions that we're talking about. So finally, um, we have uh, Caroline Young, who is a senior project manager with the Transport for the North and part of the strategic rail team. So over to you, Caroline, for your introduction. Thank you very much, Stephen. Um, I'm really pleased to be taking part today as access to public transport, especially stations and trains, is something that I've been passionate about for more than 20 years. I'm a northerner and I'm passionate about the north, um, the people who live here, the people who work here and our history. But it does seem to me that we've been held back and left behind because we still seem to have what is essentially a Victorian railway. I know investments on the horizon, but we still need to see a significant commitment to help us level up. Um, at TFN, we've published a vision for the North Railway. It's evidence-led, and we have published several reports setting it out. One of these is our long-term rail strategy, and it sets out standards for rail connectivity, identifies gaps where improvements are needed and where gaps can be closed. Some progress has been made in recent years. We have seen the introduction of some modern, new, accessible trains and the phasing out of some old, poor quality and inaccessible ones. And this is great, but it doesn't actually help anyone who can't access a station in the first place. I'll put the challenge in perspective as I see it. There are almost 600 stations in the north, from city centres to rural halts, and each one acts as a gateway to the community and each one has its own unique challenges. I do actually have to come clean as well and say that TFN doesn't have a devolved budget to pay for any improvements. And it's vital therefore that we keep working in partnership. I'm working with our partner organisations like local authorities, Network Rail and the train operators to develop and deliver a range of improvements to increase access to stations and onto trains. One area where we do have power is in our role as a sub-national transport authority to provide statutory advice to the Department for Transport. On the Transplanar route upgrade, for example, the original proposal was for the project to only provide step-free access where significant work was being proposed. We didn't feel that was acceptable. We wanted each station to have a consistent level of facilities and be fully accessible. We wanted a full route upgrade, not a partial one. And this is exactly what our statutory advice to government said. Now, the scheme remit has been amended to include the feasibility of making all stations along the route fully accessible. I can't say it's in the bag and it's certainly not a done deal, but I do think it's a start. Of course, my job isn't just all about trains and stations. Working 
with our partners, we do have a good understanding of how multimodal integration can be improved for existing stations or be provided for a new station. And I'll explain what I mean. We've already heard that a journey includes the first and last mile. It's not just about the station. The area outside the station boundary is often forgotten, but actually it can be vital to removing barriers to travel. I don't think it's rocket science to put a bus stop close to station entrances or to provide an enclosed waiting shelter that's well lit and it has real-time information and somewhere to sit. Routes to the station should be well lit, there should be pavements and there should be step-free access. And we should all feel a sense of personal security. I know tragically that it's in everyone's mind right now that we should all feel and be safe when we're out and about. I've seen firsthand where access to stations is via roads with no pavements or pavements with low drop curbs or access through a station car park with no lighting. This is the 21st century and it's really not good enough. A lot of these issues aren't helped by a lack of coordination between modes of transport or because the responsibility for making improvements doesn't lie clearly with any one organisation or it lies with multiple organisations so no one has to take the lead. Being clear, I think we have a huge amount of work to do and a huge amount of money to be spent on making the North Rail stations and their surrounding areas fully accessible and inclusive. And of course, I do accept that the current economic climate adds to the challenge. I do think that some movement is being made in the right direction, even though it is frustratingly slow. But I think that if our knowledge, resource and funding can be pulled, we could collectively, with one voice, lead the way. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you very much indeed, Catherine. Uh, Caroline, sorry. Um, just one point, by the way, for the uh, people who are uh, joining the uh, event today. Um, if you'd like to uh, get involved in uh, the Transport for, uh, Transport for the North uh, chat facility, if you go to the um, facility which is on um, hashtag, hang on, um, hashtag TFN Talks, so it's hashtag TFN Talks, and you'll be able to follow what's going on on social media now. Uh, we also obviously want you to put the questions and comments into the chat facility, which, as I pointed out, cannot be answered individually because there are so many questions we've already had today. Uh, but they will be noted, logged and taken action. And there will be the ability for those comments to be fed back to you and questions to actually be made pertinent in the terms of uh, how we move forward. And with that in mind, what I'd like to do now is to start asking the panellists um, the relevant questions which are part of today's uh, real reason for being here. As I said earlier, we had so many questions that have come in that, in fact, if we answered each question individually, there would be five seconds for every single question. So basically, we've had to do a little bit of juggling and a little bit of, I suppose, putting some of the questions into one complete, dare one say, assessment of some of the points that are raised. And the first question I'm going to ask is one that comes 
from several of the questions which asked about parts of the industry, parts of the accessibility process. And I'm going to put this to the whole panel to ask uh, all of them to think about how much do you think that the siloed approach to transport over the last few years and previous years has hindered accessibility aims? That really does cover the points that have been raised in terms of public transport, private operators, development of the accessible transport systems. So I'd like to pass that on to you now and ask each one of you to feed in and just go for it as a panel now. Um, I'm not going to ask individuals. I think you know, each of you have got points to raise on that one, which are going to be very pointed indeed. But it is about the siloed approach and the comments that uh, were raised there. So who'd like to go first on that one? I'll, uh, I'll, I'll jump in, shall I? Thank you, Stephen. Uh, I, I alluded to this in my, in my opening remarks. Uh, we do our best to try to get everyone to join up their thinking. It's, it's really difficult. I think, I think one of the, it, we have to take it right back to not, not just the decisions that are being made because of uh, economic uh, restrictions, but I think it's a, I think one of the things that is, that can, it is damaging, I'll, I'll come out and say, is where things exist in competition, where, where there's a spirit of competition and driving down cost to maximize profit. And that's not to, that's not to say I'm anti-investment or anything like that, but just the, the, the theory of this, I think it encourages silo thinking. It encourages people to think they're all fighting over the same pot of money. And that in many cases, the only way to maximize the the profit in, in, in things or economic return is is to is to drive down the cost but there are many examples where joining things up together and working in collaboration where something might might mean you have to let's say you know you have to take on board a higher initial cost well the the returns are reaped in the in the longer term uh i do i think Stephen, you talk, you and I have talked many times about passenger transport not being joined up. Well, it seems such an easy thing to do for passenger transport and all of the real providers, for example, to work with all of the bus providers to ensure that passenger transport is, has one system and everyone would benefit there. And actually, I think it would mean everyone's individual cost would be lower if they all shared, if they all had one specific percentage of one overall budget. So. I, I think there's a there's a huge impact in uh, working in isolation in a silo, but I, I do think it starts with there being a, a spirit of competition that underpins a lot of what we do. Uh, and I use the phrase cumulative impact. That's that we should be doing that for everything we do. I think, and especially now, I actually think it's an opportunity right now for us to do that, to try to think of things in terms of the wider world rather than simply bunkering down and sort of protecting what we have. Thank you, Michael. Um, anybody else like to come in on that one? Um, I would. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I agree um, with Michael. I think working in silo is extremely um, it's damaging. And I think surely accessibility should be the one area where people do collaborate and, and they do share best practice. 
And in terms of within transport itself, I mean, I know it's not popular with everybody, but one example is the Sunflower Lanyard Scheme, which started off at Gatwick Airport, which is now adopted by the railway. And since the pandemic seems to have been at least recognised by other operators, bus, tram, motorway service area. And of course, in the rail, it's, the, it, it's more regulated. So they have accessibility managers, they have accessibility panels, they go to accessibility meetings. But in the other areas of transport, this isn't the case. And we found when we were talking to say motorway service area operators, they were very keen to hear about good practice, other examples of good practice, because they do work in silo. And we were able to share things like the um, accessibility pages on websites for train operators and the FAQs and stuff like that, which for them was useful and I think it's a shame that the industry as a whole, the transport industry, doesn't share best practice in terms of accessibility. And I think they should as a sort of moral duty. Yeah, I agree. I mean, what it's meant is that there can be different policies, different staff training. Um, it's made it very difficult to um, kind of join up services. Yes, you know, in terms of training, you've got the um, rail delivery group. Mm. But it's, it's where is again the voice of disabled people a lot of the train companies have accessibility panels which is brilliant but disabled people are not paid for their expertise so the expertise is lost i uh, i got very excited last week because in a different industry i found out a disabled person was actually getting paid for their expertise and if you did it in any other walk of life and asked people at their own expense to travel all over the country um and to you know to to be part of the discussion it, it's it is i mean quite frankly it's disgusting and appalling and you know actually in a few weeks from now i might decide to call out which train companies do that because what what does that say about how much they they value that expertise um so and even the stuff that could be done you know which is about information on the websites it's it's really really poor um so i'm um, pre-lockdown i went to warwick every website when i booked my ticket they said it was accessible i get there and find it's not so actually that was uh, on top of the journey and the day's work i did there it was an additional five hours of my day to sort it when i came back to marlebone yeah i had somebody from the company there to meet me to say sorry but it doesn't buy me back my five hours of my day and you know i was very polite and said you know thanks for whoever sent you out but what, what are you going to do and and the frustration bit is every time something goes wrong it'll, it'll never happen again so so people don't believe that and i mean i literally do not believe that that anymore and i know what catherine was saying um about the lanyards but but they're quite a mixed view in the disability community i i don't want to wear a lanyard i know i know lots of people who do and i know lots of people who don't and i think um depending on your impairment and your confidence levels and things like that people make different decisions i it was suggested to me recently that every disabled person should wear a lanyard I'm really, really uncomfortable with that. Um, I just think that's that's. Um, I'm not sure how much more than actually me being in a wheelchair, wheelchair user, you need. But um, I, I think we, we've just got to think carefully about about some of these things. Um, to uh, in, in terms of where it is. So yeah, I don't think it's been great. Caroline, have you anything to add? From experience, silo working doesn't really doesn't really work. Um, you know, we've got a bus strategy, we've got rail strategies, but what we really need is a joined up public transport strategy. 
um, rather than working in silos. And I think sometimes with bus and train operators, ultimately their business isn't there to make money. So they don't want to compete with each other or they don't want competition. So sometimes, you know, you can put a bus stop right outside a railway station. I've did it in the past and bus operators just don't want to use it. Good point. Tony, you just raised the point there about some work that you're doing elsewhere. And in fact, it sort of sums up a, a topic which was raised in a, a, another few questions. And I think this is one maybe you could start answering here. Um, do you think there can be lessons learned from accessibility approaches in other areas that are applicable to transport? Mm, that's a good question. Um, yes, there, I mean, certainly in terms of customer relations uh, and staff training and being respectful to to people. Yes, I, I think there can be. I think the challenge is that um, procuring trains is really difficult. And, and at what point are we going to stop and do something different? Because the excuse is always, oh, it's old rolling stock or that there's always a reason for, for not doing it. Um, and for me, we, we have to stop and, and make a change. Um, but, but actually, I think what the pandemic has done has highlighted actually how little value is placed on disabled people. You know, compulsory do not, sorry, and this is going into deep disability politics, but compulsory do not resuscitate orders were put on tens of thousands of disabled people, which basically didn't even say when you go to hospital, you might have to fight for a ventilator. It said, if you ring up and you have COVID symptoms, you will not be taken to hospital. So somebody had already made that decision, but we had no, no value. Um, I mean, that's the kind of the stark end of it, but actually I'd say most of my experience, and this is not true because there are some really amazing people on the network, but, but a lot of the time um, we're seen as a bit, it feels like we're seen as a bit of a, an inconvenience. And when you, you still have trains with no accessible toilets and you know, all the other stuff, it's just, it, it's exhausting for people to, to have to travel. Michael, uh, I think it's an area, of course, with all the work that you do on policy, which is not just on rail, uh, this issue of other uh, industries and other areas that could be applicable. How do you think that uh, might fit together? I'm going to I'm going to provide a point, and then I'm going to allow the audience to interpret it when I when I'm quiet. But but the, it's a different thing. But the direct payment scheme, the personal budget scheme that exists within social care, was designed with by disabled people. It was a, a an idea that came from the disability movement and uh, it flourishes today, although not every council offers it the way they should. And, and people, you know, as we've been talking about, people interpret and do, diff do things differently. But the direct payment scheme enables disabled people to access the care they need and to, to buy that. So they're effectively the employer. Now, the, the, the key thing there is that it was designed by disabled people. Okay, so I think the, the, the learning is really that you, you bring everything back to if you want something to work for a group of people, you have to make sure that they're involved at the very outset. So without being able to give a, a much more direct and tangible uh, example, I think the, the success of the direct payment scheme shows it can work. And, and I think, well, actually, Stephen, I'm sorry to refer to something that maybe you can elaborate on this if there's time, but the fact that within Blackpool Transport, you have a, a fully accessible rail replacement bus service. 
So I think the fact that that takes it right back and is considering disabled people there, that's an example of something, and that's you know a real example that can be that can be taken forward, where disabled people are, are being considered at every point, and and disabled people don't have to. Uh, you know, turn up at a train station to find there are no trains that day, there's a railroad replacement bus, and find that their whole journey, their whole day is written off. So that's that's probably one. I'm sorry to steal that from you, sir, but uh, there we are. Well, it's, it's a good point, Michael. I, I'll just sort of quickly say, I mean, one of the reasons I became a non-exec director of Blackpool Transport was because we were asked as a group of disabled people to get involved in the design and the operation of those buses. And that has led to them being recommended as being a PSVR uh, requirement so that they're accessible vehicles with audio, with uh, decent uh, visual facilities, um, with two wheelchair spaces. We've taken out the, um, uh, the fight that happens on our buses and reduced complaints by 78%. So it can be done, and as Tony has inferred, by the correct implementation of disabled people at the design stage and I think that's again a very very key thing that is being missed. What was said earlier though, uh, Tony again uh, brought the point about uh, coronavirus. I was going to say what do you see yet as the full extent of the impact on coronavirus on travel behaviours? Uh, do you think it's going to change the approach and the priorities when it comes to accessibility in the near future? You know, thinking about social distancing I, one lovely lady that we know, and um, with her beautiful guide dog Rosie, who I absolutely adore and have uh, fallen in love with so many times. But I mean, as she said, her guide dog has never been taught to socially distance, and they get so many issues of um, you know, oh, you're too near to me. Well, the dog doesn't get used to that. So how do we re-engage with travel behaviour at the end of um, uh, COVID lockdown? when travel behaviours and commuters are gone and there's going to be very much more of a sort of a leisure, oblique, disability travel, families travelling, people wanting to move and take staycations, for example. Any thoughts on that one? Any of you? I'd worry about the dial back on turn up and go um, as one part of it. And, you know, in a lot of trains, there's not enough suitcase space anyway. Um, and obviously I'm a wheelchair user, so the wheelchair space is quite important to me. You know, that being misused, I mean, I'd love to empower. I was on a train in January last year and the wheelchair space was completely full of luggage and the conductor on board tried to get everyone to move it. And actually he was brilliant. He basically said at the next station, if you don't come and move it, I'm chucking it all out of the platform. Bab, people came and moved it. Um, I also had someone said, is it okay if I meet, lean my suitcase against you? No. Um, so anyway, that's another one. But the, the worry I get is, I mean, some of the rules during COVID absolutely support them a lot. But um, the one time, um, some point last year, where we were allowed to travel, and um, I booked assistance to make sure that this, both ends knew I was coming. I booked the wheelchair space. And when I got to the train station, they refused to sell me a ticket because I hadn't booked a seat. And they, we, it was a 20 minute robust discussion with pretty much every level of person at the top who came out to talk to me. And they said, no, no, unless you book a seat, you can't get on the train. And actually now the seat booking's closed. That, but I booked the wheelchair space. No, it's not a seat. And you just sometimes think, am I just, am I just talking to a brick wall? I mean, complete and utter stupidity, which 
um, and I only just made my train. Um, and so it's things like that that you just, I don't know, it's just think about it. So I, I worry about that. I worry about disabled people not wanting to travel because of people coming too close to them. And I think that is going to be um, a real issue. And if we drop out of consciousness, then it, it'll be hard to, to get back to the same level of service that we had before. Catherine, have you views on that one? I think uh, the behaviour of other passengers is going to be the key issue possibly here um, because people have different levels of anxiety or caution around the virus and those that are fairly blasé about it, not all of them, but a lot of them can behave very selfishly. Um, and so it's going to be down, I think, to transport operators to manage other people's behaviour. Um, I do, because otherwise it's going to cause levels of anxiety for everybody. If people just get too close to other people because they've had the vaccine or they don't think, you know, they're at risk. And crowding is going to be a big issue because I think one of the other points about crowding is people who want to avoid busy services, that information is available, but it's only available online. Now, not everyone has digital access. So if you don't have digital access, but you want to use public transport, and it's important to you to travel on less busy services, how, how are you supposed to do that? I mean, there are ways I imagine around it or ways that can help a bit, but they're not really advertised. You know, ask station staff, they should be able to help you there. Find the contact centre. But when you see adverts for use this app or use, go on our website to find out how busy our services are, you don't then see if you can't do that or you don't see posters up then saying, if, if you want information about this another way, find the contact centre or ask a member of staff. So I think there's the other point that a lot of this information, COVID management is online. And that doesn't suit everyone. No, absolutely. Caroline, um, being the representative of Transport for the North, how do you view the, I suppose, the recovery from COVID and the use of public transport? Well, certainly um, train operators have learned a lot from last year, from coming out of lockdown, and they've seen the growth of the leisure market more than a commuter market. And what was interesting in September, normally you see a drop-off of leisure market but an increase in commuters and all we saw last September was a drop-off of leisure and no increase in commuters and I think the train operators this year are more geared up for the for the general um, slower unlocking um, but they are geared up for more leisure markets they're geared up for longer trains on leisure routes that they saw last year and they do have some train crew and, and, and rolling stock in reserve so if they start to see a trend on a particular route they may be able to provide longer trains to meet that demand because they're very much aware that people aren't going to want to be crammed on a train or, or and they're going to want to social distance so where they can they will as I say they forecast where they're going to need the longer trains and more crew but a lot of it will be we're not 100% sure how it's how this unlocking will happen yeah. Now, we're not supposed to travel a huge amount to Easter, but if it's nice, I can guarantee you that people will. They'll ignore the rules and they'll just go. I live somewhere that's going to be absolutely swamped. Um, I know. <laughs> I know, yes. <laughs> we've just heard in our local media up here in Blackpool that uh, Scotland, um, the amount of Googling that's going on to come to Blackpool uh, when lockdown eases is absolutely phenomenal. So uh, we shall see... Um, uh, in spite of Nicola Sturgeon's efforts, we shall see Blackpool full of uh, the Scottish holidaymakers again, no doubt. 
Catherine, you actually raised a point in your response there about digital and um, uh, IT challenges. And I think actually that's something, again, I'm going to address to all of you and say, how important is it to understand the digital challenges? And do you think these could be made more difficult, exacerbated by technological improvements and maybe creating a two-tier system of those that have and those that have not? Now, if I may, I'm going to throw this one to Michael first. Despite the fact that technology and use of technology is absolutely liberating for some disabled people, uh, there's still a massive inequality in terms of who uses it and who doesn't. Disabled people are disproportionately less likely to be able to access technology. And that's part, but again, it's partly due to uh, their economic position. It's not always simply because a disabled person doesn't have a smartphone because they can't use it, it's because they can't afford it, because they're less likely to be in work, because they were less likely to go further in education, because of uh, uh, poverty of, of in economic poverty, poverty of ambition and aspiration. So I, I, I think it goes right back to there. I think I think there's there's such a lot of uh, work that we could be we could be doing in other areas. But I, I do think I mean, one of the things I was thinking about in preparation for this this session was if we can't use digital if, you know, if, if access to, to smartphones and things like that is restricted, well, what else, what else can we do and what else, what else should we be doing? But I think it's really, really important messages should be reasonably available in, man, in, in all types of uh, media. It shouldn't just be digitization. Digitization is something I hold my hands up. We're, you know, within Disability Rights UK, our, I mentioned our, our, our reach in terms of uh, our website first. So, we you know we pat ourselves on the back in in relation to that but what what we really want to be doing is to empower in communities so empowering you know one of the things we do is we empower advisors so ad, an advisor if someone uses one of our services let's say if someone uses one of our fact sheets 15 times well we would hope what they're doing as well is they're maybe printing it out for someone they may be taking bits of it you know we try to put our information in in chunks so it's it could be copied and pasted, for example, so it can be shared. So I think, I, I think we've really got to be careful that digitization doesn't ghettoize the people who can't do that. And actually, given the, the amount of money that goes into startups, I mean, I, where I am right now, I'm surrounded by startups here in the in here east in the Olympic Park, surrounded by startups. What would be great would be let's say an element of social value in terms of the, the money that goes to startups, the money that's invested in digitization. So let's let's talk about that, but let's also, let's also award a pot of money to those who can be innovative in terms of other ways in which they share the information. And actually the onus they put on people who use their information to share it, for example. So, so that would be one idea, I think. Mm -hmm. Sorry to only talk about train travel, but um, we've been waiting for an app for quite a long time. And um, quite mysterious. Who knows? It will appear. Um, but what I say to every train company is, don't please don't overpromise on it. Uh, I know it's going through user testing at the moment, but never tweet ever, ever, ever. Don't worry when the app comes; it will be fine because it, it, that's not how it works. So um, I hope it does. But I know you know with some companies, there's going to be have to be union negotiations, discussions. Who's going to use it? Who's going to access it? Um, it's 
it's, it's not the app that will solve things, it's the people who use it. And I'm very excited about having an easier way of booking, um, but um, I'd, I'd like to see a little bit of urgency around that. And Michael's absolutely right. At least million disabled people can't access the internet. Uh, and then there are issues with um, the, uh, I talked a little bit about map, the, the maps and, and things before and about not correct information being there. But um, the NRE website, mobile website, doesn't pull through station accessibility information. So all the talk information on mobile devices is wrong. So if you're not going to get that right, no, no internet access in the world is going to solve that if you don't have the, the right information on there and information's power and give you choices. So, you know, that needs to be sorted pretty quickly. Anybody else like to come in on that one? Just to say that I think the one thing that probably could happen more is when there's an online, not necessarily solution, but information like let's go back to crowding information, because that's going to be key for a lot of people um, for, for a long time to come. Um, and when you're, when you're providing that information, it's only online, you need to think about, well, how, how are we going to offer the same service? So it won't be quite as good, but how are we going to offer access to the same information to people who don't have access to online information. For example, I don't know, you could put up posters and have audio announcements at the station saying if you want to know about how busy our services are, phone this number or ask a member of the station staff. But each time something is available online, I think the question the operators have to ask themselves is how are we going to provide this to people and how are we going to let people who don't have online access know how to get the same information because usually there will be a way around it it won't be quite as good and quite as convenient but there'll still be a way around it it was wonderful to get some of these points raised so look thank you very much indeed everybody have a very good afternoon have a very good weekend and the way the sun's starting to come through everywhere it just could be a nice time so look after yourselves thank you very much indeed and good afternoon well, that was a really insightful look at the importance of accessibility when we're planning and delivering transport projects. I hope it was interesting to you. I hope maybe it gave you some uh, ideas and better awareness uh, of why accessibility in transport matters. So thank you to uh, all our speakers who joined us on that session. Thank you to everybody who took part and submitted their questions for that. And if you didn't, of course, we've been able to bring you uh, the recording today on the podcast. If you do want to get involved in the future TFN Talk sessions, as I said at the start of the episode, head over to our website via the calendar section. You'll find a page dedicated to TFN Talks. You can actually find all the recordings of previous sessions on there. And if you sign up to our All Points North newsletter on there, you will get information about the next sessions as well. They're all free, they're all online. So we do hope that you'll be able to join us in future. As always, thank you so much for tuning into the podcast. Make sure you're subscribed so that you never miss an episode. Uh, we will be coming back uh, following the elections with some more interviews with some of our members from across the north. Of course, we have to stop doing those during the pre-election period. So stay tuned for more of that. And, and of course, there's going to be plenty of transport news to keep us going uh, throughout the year as well. We're still awaiting things like the Integrated Rail Plan and the Williams Review. Uh, and on from that, obviously, the Northern Powerhouse Rail Activity is just going to ramp up and up. And we've got so much more to come as well from uh, Transport for the North. 
thanks so much for listening and we look forward to seeing you again soon thanks for listening to the transport for the north podcast don't forget you can subscribe on spotify and soundcloud so you never miss an episode you can find us on twitter linkedin and facebook for all our latest updates and join us on our website where you can find all the latest news and sign up to our all points north newsletter